This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book. Is number five of the series, The Two-Folded Nest of Prophecy. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you will join us, will you switch off and read together with us Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Those of you who have read these two chapters will realise that they're not easy of exposition, but one thing comes out of it. Apparently, no one right down the ages could ever have got to this point when he could be said to be worthy to take this power and reign. And then you notice not only do these living creatures, wrongly translated beasts, not only do they say, worthy is the Lamb, but the whole creation now joins in and agrees every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them are heard I saying blessing and honour and glory and power. Now our subject this evening is the two-folded mess of prophecy and we are considering this evening the two dynasties that dominate the book. The dynasty of course referring to a succession of monarchs um, we have the one deriving from David onwards and the other deriving from Nebuchadnezzar onwards. The dynasty of David temporarily suspended, now taken up again and carried to its legitimate end. Now one of the things for us to remember is that the word dynasty does, or the word that gives us the word dynasty does occur in our scriptures. So we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 6.15 just to get that. It won't be translated dynast, of course, uh, but it's good to know that these words have got their place. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. That's the word that gives us the word dynasty. Potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality and so on. So here you see, at the appearing of Christ, there will be one at long last who will be worthy of that title, to take that power and that glory and reign. Now as I said, we have, we have these two conflicting dynasties. You remember we started and saw in the scriptures there were two seeds. But it didn't leave it at that. It said there was one seed against the other. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and thy seed. And then we found that there were two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, cities representing systems. We saw there were two who were called the anointed, our saviour and that fallen being that had been in Eden, the garden of God. This double work is two mysteries. The mystery of godliness. The mystery of iniquity. Going side by side until tested and found wanting or approved. Well now if you will look at the Gospel according to Luke, I want to bring together two passages which I think will help us in our study this evening. The first chapter of Luke
Mary is being addressed by the angel. Verse 32, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So at the birth of Christ, or just before his birth, it was indicated that he was going to be the true son of David. You remember, David wrote a psalm concerning the king's son. Psalm 72, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and the river unto the ends of the earth. He shall come down like showers upon the mown earth and so on. Well, that was foreshadowed by David. But David's son, Solomon, although he was a picture of the Prince of Peace, he never got as far as to fulfill that psalm. Here it is. He shall be great, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, then you come to chapter 3, and you read further with regard to uh, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 4, where our Saviour is taken and tempted, the beginning of his ministry. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 4, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory. Notice the words, the power and the glory. They come in the great prayer, don't they? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. He said, All this power and this glory, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Now that's a claim that was made by the devil and he wasn't rebuked by our Saviour. When Peter made a mistake over something, he was rebuked. But this one took our Saviour and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory and the power and said he would give them all to Christ that it was in his power to do so on one condition. If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Now you go to the end of the book, the book of the Revelation, and what our Saviour, of course, refused was nevertheless carried out by this evil one. For there you get that monster which gathers up into itself the symbolism of the Gentile dominion of the book of Daniel, and he gave unto that beast his great authority, and all the world worshipped the dragon. You see? So it wasn't an empty statement. He could, and he had that right. Where he got that right may be a problem to, to quite fix, but that there was something happened in the affairs of man, where through disloyalty on the part perhaps of Adam, and disloyalty on the part of Israel, that it for the moment passed, the, the stewardship and the uh, recognition of power passed to this evil one, who was only too willing to usurp it. Well now, we must leave that part to speak for itself as we go on. First of all, I think we'll take a, a, just a running look at those passages in the book of Samuel, the first of Samuel and the second Samuel, uh, that just bring David into the light, but we won't stop on them because we have much ground to cover. The first of Samuel, chapter 16, is where David comes into the story. You will remember that Israel had rejected the Lord by demanding to have a king like the nation. It wasn't wrong for them to demand a king 
For in the law of Moses, it had been foreshadowed that there would be a king, but the trouble with this people who have been separated by God from all the nations of the earth, they said, make us a king like the nations. Well, to say that, of course, was to step down from their great and high position. And Saul was the one that was chosen, head and shoulders above his people, and for the time, giving great promise. But he ended up as a suicide, and he went and dealt with wizards that speak, that uh, betray and lie. That was Saul. Now, after a time, Samuel was sent, and 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, just to remind you how David is brought into the story. Uh, it says that in uh, verse 6 of chapter 16, it came to pass, when they were come, that's the sons of Jesse, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So the scripture even tells you that Samuel made a mistake. How easy it is to make mistakes, isn't it? A man of God. He'd already anointed one man who was head and shoulders above the others and he thought, oh, this is the man. But he was wrong. No. And at last he said, well, um, have you got any more sons because the Lord hasn't chosen these? And Jesse said, uh, verse 10, uh, no, verse 11, and Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, Oh, you can imagine there he made it yet the youngest. Uh, behold, he keepeth a sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. So, after having remarked that he looked at Eliab and thought he was the, he was the one, it didn't mean to say that God was going to choose someone who was necessarily ugly. You must go to the other extreme, you see, because evidently David was of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look upon. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So there David was anointed, but there you know the story goes on, how he came into touch with Saul, and how he transacted in symbol what was going to happen with regard to his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. For he went down to his brothers when they were uh, in war with the Philistines, and they said to him, looked him up and down, Now, you've left your little flock of sheep to come down here, you know. And he said, No, I put them in the charge of a keeper before I did. So he was wise, you see. And he said, You're allowing this man to walk up and down and blaspheme the name of the living God. Has nobody got any ability or thought that they can do anything with him? Oh, they said, What can you do? So he was taken to Saul. And you know how Saul made the mistake? He said, You think you can go meet this Goliath? Yes. So he dressed, he dressed David up in Saul's armour. Now David was a stripling and Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. Talk about that play that used to be in London some time ago and, and one of the actors was the same name as myself. When knights were bold, he must have looked an idiot dressed up in Saul's armour, mustn't he? And friends, so will you be. So will I, if I walk about in second-hand armour. See to it that what you do believe, you believe yourself not because somebody else dresses you up and says so. David said, oh no, I haven't tried it. But what happened? This great boastful giant was brought down by a stone, cut out without hands. You mean the cell you can't see the book of Daniel? Transacted in that, David brings down this Goliath by a stone, cut out without hands. And in the book of Daniel, the great Gentile dominion starting with Nebuchadnezzar, 
is brought down by a stone cut out without hands at the end. And that fills the earth and becomes the kingdom that you'll never pass away. Well, if you remember, in the second of Samuel, I won't turn to the passages, I'll just remind you. First of all, his own tribe meet together and they make him king. They now accept him. They make him king of Judah. And then later on, in the fifth chapter, all Israel gather together and they make him king over all Israel. So then you've got David's uh, life as a king divided into two parts. He came to his own, but alas, they refused him. But when he does come the second time, it will be to reign and rule over all God's people. Now there's one other feature uh, with regard to the future that I would like to introduce to you. That is, first of all, uh, Hosea chapter 3. The prophecy of Hosea is that which introduces, you know, those words we use, No army, not my people, because the children of Israel are going to abide, it says in chapter 3, many days, without a king and without a prince. The chapter 3, verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without cherubim. And after that long period of waiting and segregation is over, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord, their God, and David their king. <coughs> now, <coughs> it would be a legitimate interpretation to say, well, when it says seeking <coughs> David their king, it means Christ. But in Jeremiah chapter 30, don't bother to find it unless you'll quit, because I shall finish it in one verse. It says in verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord, their God, <coughs> and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Now that's a specific statement. They shall serve David their king, whom I will raise up. So just as Abraham is to be raised up to enjoy his inheritance, so David is yet going to be the vice-regent, the king on earth, represented the king who is over all, I will raise him up. Well now, there are many passages uh, where you remember our Saviour is spoken of as the seed of David. So we're going now to turn <coughs> to the opening of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. <coughs> and it would be pardonable, I suppose, for anybody who was very pressed for time and seeking guidance and blessing in the Word uh, to look at this opening chapter of Matthew Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and you've only got about five minutes to get a piece of scripture to help you on your way. You say, oh, well, let's look at some other bit, you see. But don't forget, this is an integral part of Holy Writ. And the New Testament starts with proving that this child that was born at Bethlehem was the legitimate heir to the throne of David. The angel said he would be, and here he is actually born in the city of David. The Caesar Augustus who commanded all the world to be taxed didn't know he was going to help fulfill scripture any more than some of the other poor wretches who have defied the living God didn't know that they were fulfilling scripture. He simply commanded a taxation, but the law of the land was that you must go to your own city. So Joseph and Mary had to trek across country to go back because they were of the line of David. Now you see what's moving. 
It's all coming now, as God said. Because you remember when Herod asked the question, where should he be born that is king of the Jews? They immediately said, oh, in Bethlehem, for it is written. So we have now these words. Goes right the way down. Abraham begat Isaac and Jacob. Until you come to verse 12. And Josiah begat Jehoiakim, Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now you notice Babylon's coming into the story. If the people of Israel are carried away to Babylon there's a break coming in the continuity of this kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to have a lot of kings of other people sitting on little thrones in Babylon. You can remember that can't you? And here in the very genealogy of Christ comes the indication it didn't go right straight on. If there's, ever, if there's ever a course of true love that never did run smooth, it's the true love of God that's mentioned in the Bible. All the opposition, the many things that were there to frustrate, but God, of course, was overall. So now it says in verse 12 of Matthew 1, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And it goes right the way down until we come to verse 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So from one point of view, Joseph was in direct descent from David. He got his pedigree, right from David, right the way down. But, there's a stop here. Because you remember that in the Gospel according to Luke, we have another genealogy. So before we use this chart to demonstrate the difference, will you look at the third chapter of Luke's Gospel? Luke 3, verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Even our Saviour conformed to the Levitical rule that a priest or a Levite commenced his public ministry at round about 30 years of age. You couldn't be exact because a person would be born in one month and another person in another. But about 30 years of age, our Lord started his public ministry. Then it says in our version, being as was supposed. Now it is true that the word translated supposed can mean a supposition or can mean to reckon. But it also means to legally reckon. The word is made up of the word legal. And in a genealogy, well, at least in these days, you, you go to the office and you want to claim something that's left you in a will and you produce a birth certificate and you're supposed to be the son of so-and-so. Well, that's going to finish it, isn't it? There's no supposition here. He was legally reckoned the son of Joseph. Now, we will put it this way round. He was the son-in-law of Joseph. Joseph had full responsibility for this child that was born. He paid the redemption money, he brought him up and so on, but he wasn't his natural father. And the distinction between Matthew and Luke is that in Matthew it says, Abraham begat, so and so begat. These are physical descendants, but not so here. Now the next thing for us to know is that no genealogy in the scriptures is taken through a woman. Always through the man. You've got to decide one or the other because uh, I remember many, some years ago on the wireless, somebody sent up to the Brains Trust, he said, I'm in a pickle, he said, because 
I have two parents. My two parents had two parents, that's four. But he said, the further I get back to Adam, the more parents I've got. Well, then these people bothered at it. They never bothered. They were simply poking fun at Adam. And I tried to speak down the uh, loudspeaker, but they didn't hear me. I said, if you'd only know the biblical thing, there's no problem at all. You could only take your genealogy through one line. And the line is the masculine. So, this is another genealogy. It's Mary's genealogy. But she doesn't come in in the name. And Joseph is now the son-in-law. Because he can't be the son of two different fathers. He can't be the descendant of two brothers. So it's now the son-in-law all the way down, you see. And then at last, it comes at the finish, right the way down, past David, right the way down to Adam. Well now, let's see if we can uh, get a little bit of a solution of this. I've already suggested partly how it comes in. You will notice that we start here. I've got the legal or legal, regal or legal line through this side. And we've got the seed of the woman, the natural, that side. Now this is where God comes in to tell us. He said, I told you the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head in spite of all his opposition. And so it's coming about that by the time we get down here, there's a break. First of all, it runs naturally from Adam, Terah. Terah was the father of Abraham. Abraham was the ancestor of David. That's all clear. But now, David has two sons, Solomon and Nathan. Now, it's absolutely impossible for any child to be descended from Solomon and Nathan. You can't be descended from your own father and your uncle, can you? Well, that's what's happening. That's, that would be the uncle. And yet, you see, he comes in the line. Well, what's happened? So we come here, and we see this name, Jeconiah, which has to do with when they were taken to Babylon. And I think you'll see that that helps us to get a little bit of a solution to this problem. Would you look at Jeremiah, chapter 22. I think you better turn to this because of its importance. Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse, verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, Coniah. You look elsewhere, you won't find him called Coniah. His name was Jeconiah. You see what's happened, friends? He's already lost the name of God. J-E is the name Jehovah. He won't call him Jeconiah. He won't call him Jehoiakim. He, Coniah, the J-E is God. So there's a symbol at once. The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. If he were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. And then further down, Verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. So you see, although the pedigree goes right the way down, past this man, past Jeconiah, past right down to Joseph, he did have children. But not one of them would be permitted to, to sit upon the throne. So although Joseph was a literal descendant 
Right the way through to David, he couldn't claim the throne. Would he say, that was uh, perhaps the work of the evil one, seeking to frustrate God. Yes, I know. But now, if you will look a little bit further in these genealogies, you will notice that there are there is the name Salathiel. Will you look back at Matthew one twelve and keep Luke three open in front of you? Matthew one twelve. Are you getting a bit of a headache over this? Well, I had one before, friends, so share it with me. Matthew one twelve. Now let's face this problem. Although, of course, we've got the we've got the answer to it practically now before us. Verse 12, and after Babylon, after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. Well now, would you keep that, that name, those two names in mind, and look at the third chapter of Luke once more. And this time, verse 27. Which was the, now you see the word son is in italics, it's not there. Which was of, that is to say, he is the son-in-law that's being mentioned all the time, of Johanna, which was the son of Risa, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Salathiel. Here, wait a minute, you say. How can Salathiel and Zerubbabel be in both of these lines? You see the problem? They're over this side, descended from Solomon, and yet they're over this side, descended from Nathan. Well, even though it's in the Bible, it's wrong, isn't it? Oh, I must be careful, because we are the ones that are making mistakes. If once you see that it's the son-in-law that's running right down the third of Luke, that's exactly what happened. You can imagine Satan having put the spoke in God's wheel and made it impossible that the line of David should continue and God had promised that David should have a son that should reign off on his throne and reign forever. You could almost imagine him standing back doing that Mephistophelian chuckle. I think that's done it. That's put a spoke in the wheel. And then, as far as I interpret, a little love affair took place. And a marriage is transacted so that Salathiel comes over to this side. You don't know the name of the lady because she doesn't count, you see. Salathiel, who was actually born here, is found here because he's now the son-in-law. And it carries the whole thing down to the seed of the woman and Christ came of the seed of David after all the opposition. Blessed be God. So out of the sort of difficult passage of this genealogy, there emerges a wonderful truth. That you cannot stop God. And it's a disastrous thing to attempt to. Because the evil one was taken in his own craftiness and defeated. Well now I must leave that to you, but you do see, don't you, that this is important. We can't dispense with Matthew 1 or with Luke 3 without robbing our Saviour and robbing ourselves of this claim which is so wonderfully verified by these two passages. Well now, let's um, look at the other side of the story. What about this going to Babylon? This thrusting in and spoiling the work? Well, let's turn back to the prophecy of Daniel, shall we? And see the other dynasty that has come and, and interfered uh, but which is to pass away. And then we shall see, in prophecy, there are two seeds, there are two cities, there are two dynasties, two sets of kingdoms, one 
is temporary and evil. The other is everlasting and right. So no wonder we're up to our eyes in trouble, friends. We are now under the dominion of Gentile rule that was, that was taken over because Israel had failed. We are under the authority of darkness. The epistle to the Ephesians says that uh, speaks about the spiritual wickednesses in heavenly places and the rulers of the darkness of this world. No wonder there's trouble. And none of our methods that we adopt, either summit conferences or whatever else, could ever spoil or alter that. I will overturn, 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 says the scripture, till he come whose right it is, and I will give it unto him. And that's the only answer that God will make to all the problems that we have. They are vested in his son. He came the first time, and there he bowed. All the wonder of it. He bowed. He said, this is your hour and the authority of darkness. And they delivered him up to Pilate. And then there'll be his hour and the authority of darkness will be over. And he will then not only be king on the throne of David, but king of kings and lord of lords. He will not lose anything, but he will gain the more. Well now Daniel starts off in the first chapter with this fact, which I think we do well to remember, that Nebuchadnezzar didn't take this kingdom. He was a great conqueror, and he had great armies and great wealth. But in this particular case, it says, in the, fir- in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, you notice the man again? This man, who's going to be set aside completely, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Well, another one came up against Jerusalem and besieged it. And he had a name to frighten the nations round about him, that was Sennacherib. And if you want to get a little idea of the nature of Sennacherib, have a look at the Assyrian room in the British Museum and see what that man did to some of his some of his conquered foes. What a terrible man he was. And yet, he came with all the bombast and blasphemy against God. And God said to Hezekiah, I'll put a hook in his nose and send him back. And he did. But Nebuchadnezzar comes, and it says, and the Lord gave. The Lord gave. Not Nebuchadnezzar took. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Well, that is a parallel to Satan's statement It was delivered unto me, and I pass it on to whosoever I will. So here you see, when man fails of God, something like that happens. When Adam sinned, by one man's disobedience, we get these words coming into the scriptures. Sin reigned, death reigned, it has dominion. As soon as you reject the dominion and the reign of of God, you put yourself under another, you'll never be without it. Darkness or light, good or evil, God or Satan. That's the story that's coming out. Well now for the moment, we're going to look at Gentile dominion. And that Gentile dominion continues right the way down and its character is in Luke's gospel defined among other things. It says that it shall, that Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled and then Israel shall be saved, the king will come and the glorious end will be reached. And that's the times in which we're living. 
We are living in the period of Gentile dominion. The people of Israel, they were chosen by God to be a priestly nation, and they're neither priests nor kings. The children of Israel should abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a priest or everything. But one day they're going to look upon him and they pierced, and they shall return to the Lord and to David their king in the latter days. And David will be raised up to take his rightful place again. So in this book of Daniel, we find that Israel is already captive. Daniel was a prince in, in Israel, but he's a captive. And there he is, a servant now, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Now, dreams seem to be very much used in the Old Testament as a means of making known some of the will of God. I don't know whether it means that we suffer so much from indigestion and worries that if we try to interpret all our dreams now, we'd get the beat Daniel, wouldn't we? But this was something that troubled Nebuchadnezzar. He was conscious. This couldn't be treated lightly. So instead of telling his dreams to his soothsayers, he'd say, you tell me the dream and then I'll believe what your interpretation is. Oh, they said, that's never been heard of any king ever asking that. And the more they said that, the more wonderful it was that Daniel did it. And then Daniel was introduced to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, there is a man among the captives of Judah. He can, he can speak, he can tell. God speaks to him. Daniel comes in. And so we find in chapter 2 that, um, I'll pick it up again here in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste mm-hmm. and said unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. And the king answered uh, and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, you see, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they, that wasn't their true name. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, because El at the end of his name was the name of the God of Israel, so that's blotted out, you see. Belteshazzar, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen? And the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king, or I'm glad he took this opportunity, the secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king? See, he just a little bit, just say, you see, where you are, King Nebuchadnezzar. But, there is a God in heaven that revealed secrets. He didn't take it to himself. There's a God in heaven. Now he said, verse 30, As for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. Now he said, I'll tell you what you saw, O king, and for the sake of time, I'll just sketch it out in front of you. No, he said, you saw a great image, and it had a head of gold. It had a breast of silver. It had belly and thighs of copper, not brass, copper. Then it had legs of iron. And then it had feet of partly iron and partly clay. Well, if you leave it at that, you think of a, an image made of metal standing on clay, the poor old thing would go over like a wax candle in the sun, wouldn't it? But if, if you read in the margin that the feet were partly strong and partly brittle, that was porcelain, 
And if you had a clay made into a china base, it would stand a tremendous weight as long as it wasn't struck by a blow. That's what happened to it. Now he said, there's a degeneration in these metals. Thou art this head of gold. And before we go any further in that, see the extent of the dominion given to Nebuchadnezzar. You may not have spotted this before, but no king on earth has ever had a dominion like this. Verse 38. Oh, verse 37. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, now that was far greater than the extent of Chaldea, wheresoever, there were people living in other parts of the earth, as well as the bit ruled over by Nebuchadnezzar. The beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, of the heaven. Don't you see this is going back to the dominion that was lost by Adam? So here we have the dominion lost by Adam, and the kingship lost by Israel, all being given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, as much as to say, God says, now you see what you do with it. Man is being tested and tried, and all how he comes out wanting. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all, thou art this head of gold. Whatever this is after you is an inferior kingdom coming, silver being not quite so valuable, and it was double, there were the breasts of the silver, that was the dual kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Then we had the brazen part of it, the copper, as it should be, not, so ne- not necessarily brass, that was the Alexander's kingdom that succeeded Persia. These are all in historic order, just as surely as 1066 William the Conqueror comes before whatever the next king was, whose name I forget. You see? <laughs> we know all about Bible kings, but we forget our own. But this is just as true, just as true this succession. Now, here's a man standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, before ever Nebuchadnezzar gets the kingdom properly to rule, and tells him not only his next successor, who was on the horizon, Persia, but he speaks about Greece that's coming next, he speaks about the Roman power that came next, and some people will leave Rome out. But that's a mistake. Who was it? What, ki- what soldiers were they walking about Jerusalem when our Saviour was there? Romans. What money was in circulation when our Saviour was there? Romans. What, uh, who was it that ultimately had the last word as to whether he should be crucified or not? A Roman. Of course, where they want to leave Rome out is because it went on such a tremendous long time afterwards. That's because of the present dispensation of the mystery which comes in like a brackets which you don't count. It started right back there in the Acts of the Apostles while Rome was still here and it'll be picked up again when this dispensation is over and continue and Our country is now seeking to become one with Europe for economical purposes, not knowing the teaching of Scripture, but it's got to be, as far as I can see, to bring it back as it was in the days of Rome. Europe was all a part of Rome. I don't mean Roman Catholic, just Rome, and it'll be as it was in the beginning to pick up for the end. But if I'm a false prophet, don't worry, because I'm only telling you what I think and not what is written here. Well, now, it goes on to say that... um, the, the, the end of it. Verse, four, uh, verse uh, 42. I'm, I'm jumping a bit too quickly now. 
And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken, margin brittle. That's where the clay is indicated as being porcelain, partly brittle. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall, now listen to this, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. They shall not mingle with the seed of men. Now, later on you're told that the ten toes represent ten kings that are yet to rule and have not yet received their kingdom, and it's a demonic kingdom. Oh, you get the book of the Revelation. Devils and, and, and horrible beings there over the earth before the end comes. They shall not mingle with the seed of men because they're not men. It's now got to its last phase in this part of the story. And in the days of those kings, now it hasn't said a word about these kings, except the suggestion of the ten toes, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. You see, all this mighty kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar will be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, you know this, although Nebuchadnezzar has passed off the scene for hundreds of years, when this kingdom is broken at the end, when Christ comes, the whole kingdom is there seen as one, Gentile dominion. Never mind about one particular king or another. So he says, uh, the, uh, the, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now, in the book of the Revelation, what does the false prophet do in order to sort of impress upon all the world the domination of the great anti-Christian beast that will sum up the, the world plan, the world army, the world police force, the world, or the world church with all its doctrines and everything? Uh, how does it speak about that? He's going to make an image of the beast and compel universal worship. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did, verse chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was, now three score, I'm going to translate that back again, whose height was 60 cubits, and the breadth thereof, 6 cubits. 60 and 6. And when you get to the book of Revelation, there's one more added, you see. 666. 666, the number of the beast. So Nebuchadnezzar was foreshadowing the great beast at the end. And he was doing the same thing. He set up on the plain of Jura this great golden image. And then commanded that there should a proclamation be made. That if anyone refused to bow down, verse 5, that at that time he hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery and dulcimer and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image. And this sort of music goes with it all the time, doesn't it? I suppose you know that what we call jazz is just the idol worship, the music accompanying idol worship, 
Theos is the Greek word for God. The, the um, Portuguese pronounced it Dios, D-I-O-S. They went to Africa and they saw the uh, Negroes dancing round the idol shrine with their peculiar swaying of the body and funny music, and they called it jazz. And it went across to America and it's come back as jazz. And we're doing the devil worship with all this. No wonder it works people up to do such obscene things sometimes. It was intended to. And so we have here. When you hear all kinds of music like that, that you fall down and worship. And if not, you'll be put to death. And you remember that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they would not fall down and worship. And it's so wonderful. Oh, I think we do well to remember this. In verse 17, they're up before Nebuchadnezzar. He says, who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Sometimes that's the only way you can deal with it. We're not going to discuss it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, Oh, that's the, that's the spirit we've got to have, friends, at long last. And if not, oh, and say, so, well, we better bow down and save our skins. No. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And then you remember how Nebuchadnezzar said, did we not cast three into the fire? And I see one like the Son of God. God has sent his angel. Oh, yes. He's able to preserve, although he said, we're not banking on it if God should otherwise direct. Well now, just a word or two about that peculiar monster that comes in Revelation. You remember there's a monster described in, in Revelation. It had the um, mouth of a lion, the paw of a bear, it, it, like a leopard, all what a mix up. Now why did he get such fantastic imagery? Well, if you know your book of Daniel, you would know chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and the visions of his head, and they troubled him. He saw in verse 3, four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now look at this imagery and think of Revelation 13. The first was like a lion. Number 5. Behold, another beast was like a bear. Number 6. Another one like a leopard. And then, in number seven, an indescribable monster that you couldn't describe at all. Well, there it was. Book of the Revelation. He stood upon the sand of the sea and he called up this monster. He was like a lion. He was like a bear. He was like a leopard. And he was diverse from all that's ever been on the earth. That's the final phase of Gentile dominion. Represented by a wild beast. Happy prospect for those whose hearts and thoughts and all that they possess and all that they have is to do with this world, isn't it, friends? But it's true enough. And so he goes on to say that the uh, I saw in the night visions, verse 7, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. This is the last phase that's coming. It's before the time of the end. Now let's get the end then. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven 
and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom, which will not be destroyed. So there it is. We've got two dynasties. I'll come back to our original title. Two dynasties in the prophecy. The dynasty of David, which is interrupted, but will finally be taken up by David's greater son. As the angel said to Mary, of his kingdom there shall be no end. But it's been stopped temporarily through the failure of the human instrument. Israel's failure gave the devil his opportunity. But he, he didn't do it without the permission of the Lord. The Lord gave to Nebuchadnezzar, gave him that dominion. And here we are down the line a long way with regard to that Gentile dominion. And while Jerusalem is not the sovereign city of the people of Israel, you know that Gentile times are still here. There's a barbed wire running through the middle of Jerusalem, and while that lasts, you know full well that the times of the Gentiles are still here. For Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations, of the Gentiles, till the fullness of the Gentiles become it. And then comes the coming of Christ, the setting up of that kingdom, which will never pass away. Well, this has been not an easy subject, either for me or for you. But I commend to you now that you go back over these two genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and work out the puzzle for yourself and see how God overruled and brought about his purposes in a way that you couldn't have devised had you been thinking it out beforehand. And how he fulfilled the statement that he would bypass Solomon and his descent. But it would be the seed of the woman that you'll come out at the end as we find in Matthew chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 3. So that while it's been a sad story to see this degeneration and the terrible things that must yet come upon the earth before this kingdom passes away forever, let us be glad that it will pass away one day. And then the hallelujahs go up in the scriptures. Great Babylon has fallen. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And then at last, there'll be a time to breathe. There'll be a time to rejoice. There'll be a time to enter into life, as our Saviour said, and have it more abundantly. Now I trust that we shall not be made in, given any sort of despair as we look in these things, but it is good for us to face realities, even though sometimes they may be dark and sombre.